Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Libke, Senior Fellow for the Center for Effective Education at the John Locke Foundation. Dr. Libke's career has centered around questions of school choice and educational policy. Dr. Libke, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. It's good to be here, Josh. Well, I, I recently read your piece at the John Locke Foundation, uh, an essay entitled Teacher Pay, A Look at the Last Decade. Uh, I found your, your report absolutely fascinating. Uh, so uh, I was hoping we could get together to talk about that. So I really appreciate you uh, meeting with me to do that. So uh, I, I've been teaching for the last eight years, and teacher pay is a conversation that teachers never get tired of. We, we could talk about that all day, every day. Uh, help us with kind of a, a, a survey about teacher pay. Has it remained stagnant or low in North Carolina, or has it changed? What, what should we know about teacher pay? Well, Jack, it, it is the issue that never goes away. Uh, and that, that's a, there are many reasons for that. Uh, but I mean, anybody who's lived in North Carolina for the last 15 years uh, realizes that teacher pay seems to be you know, one of the top education issues every year. And if you actually uh, dig down into the data for, for over the last decade, I mean, what, what you see really is that uh, teacher salaries have actually improved considerably over the last decade. Um, there's been room for improvement, but, you know, through prudent policies and, you know, for with changes, uh, you know, in how we pay teachers, et cetera, teachers have actually uh, experienced, you know, increased salaries over the last uh in the last decade, but if you if you look at just say since 2014, uh, it, in that year the average teacher salary was approximately forty five thousand dollars. You know, and and if you look at 2020 21, you know it's, it's increased to about fifty four thousand four hundred dollars. So that's that's an increase of almost twenty one percent over that time. Now. Uh, over the last eight years, in seven of those years, teachers actually received, you know, at pay raises ranging from, you know, 1.2% to about 7%. But over that time period, the average increase is about 3.25%, which is significant, you know, considering, you know, all things in that if you look at, I mean, the last eight years, uh, that has outstripped the consumer price index. So if you look closely at the last eight years, teachers have made up ground. Now there, there has been, you know, ground to make up, but if, if you look at salaries, if you look at, uh, absolute, uh, you know, absolute salaries with regards to cost of living, if you look at relative salaries with regards to other states in the southeast and so forth, all of that has improved in the last eight to 10 years. And that's a, that's a message that people really under, don't understand. But uh, if you ask the average person on the street, you know, how much uh, the average teacher makes in North Carolina, uh, that number will be inaccurate. Uh, I know over the last few years, the Civitas poll has, has actually uh, done a number of questions on that and how much, you know, that how much they think average teachers make and then, you know, what they feel they should be paid and then what uh, they're asking again, how much they actually make. And there's a, there's a, uh, there's quite a divide between what uh, people think teachers actually make and how much they actually make. So that, you know, that uh, disparity, I think drives, some of the myths, but when you dig down into the numbers over the last eight, 10 years, teachers have actually made up pretty well. Well, I, that, that's really helpful. That's one of the reasons I want to talk with you today, because I've definitely been in conversations with fellow teachers where uh, the, the, the perception is that North Carolina just doesn't pay teachers that well. Uh, and uh, certainly there's and I know there are differences there between whether you're talking about private school teachers versus public school teachers. Uh, but that that the, the difference between perception and reality that you're describing is really, really interesting. 
Now, where do you think the inaccuracy and in perception comes from? I mean, because I, I know teachers who, I mean, they, they made major life changes. I mean, in terms of like, I, I know a couple of people who chose to move to Georgia because they, they said their the cost of living was a little lower in Georgia and their salaries would be higher. Uh, and this just makes me kind of question that a little bit more. So where, where does that inaccuracy come from? Well, I think there's, a, there's been a steady drumbeat over the last 10 years by uh, North Carolina Association of Educators, which is, you know, the main uh, teacher organization, teacher union organization here in North Carolina, which is a state affiliate of the National uh, Education Association, which is the largest teachers union affiliate in, in, in the country. And, you know, obviously one of their uh, goals every year is to increase salaries. So they're constantly um, saying that, you know, North Carolina or other states are below the national average. And we can get in um, how that's kind of a misleading statistic, but they use it every year. <laughs> you know, so um, the drumbeat that NCAE has had has contributed, you know, to some of the misperception. And, you know, in fairness, in the, in the, in the, the uh, say from about 10, 2010 to about 2014 or so, you know, North Carolina was lagging, you know, with relative, in a, in a relative sense, you know, in teacher's salary, you know, relative to other states, you know, we were in, you know, the mid to low 40s as far as our ranking relative to all 50 states. But we've made considerable progress since then. You know, we had, we had that challenge and we kind of stepped up to the challenge to, to uh, pay teachers more because, you know, there was, there was a need to do that. In, in 2013, uh, uh, Governor McCrory increased, you know, the starting salary for teachers. You know, then we made a number of changes as far as, uh, you know, teacher bonuses and collapse some of the teacher schedule so that, you know, their teachers can be, uh, actually improve their salaries through other means other than just working their way through a, a salary schedule that's based on time. Uh, that's, that's really some of the major problem that, you know, we don't get into at all, you know, discussing teacher salary, but underneath all of this, one of the, one of the, uh, factors that drives this continual uh, uh, perception that teachers are underpaid is in part driven by the fact that they are paid via a schedule that's based not on performance, but on time. And that's really out of touch with most other professions. And we believe at the Locke Foundation and most other conservatives believe that teachers really should be paid on job performance and not suit time. So trying to uh, get a different way to assess that, trying to get rid of the teacher's salary uh, schedule, uh, that's really been occupying some of our time here. And I think in the long run, that's a better way to pay teachers. And it'll alleviate, I think, some of the problems that drive this obsession with teacher salaries. That's really interesting. I, I, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. What what kind of metrics would, uh, if, if if in some kind of uh, future world, the governor were to call you and say, Dr. Libke, design us a new system of uh, how we pay public school educators in the state of North Carolina. Uh, what what would you do? What would what kind of what kind of performance pieces would you be looking at to determine raises or or staying in the same pay or, or so on? Like what? What, what kinds of pieces, are those test scores? Are those, are those end of year exams? Are those some other metric? What, what kind of performance pieces would you, would you be looking at? Well, a couple of things here. Um, we already provide bonuses for uh, principals and I believe also superintendents who uh, have who students, you know, exceed state goals. We already provide that, and that's great. But I think the fundamental difference uh, that we would, uh, you know, implement is that we would make that decision a local one. Right now, the way the whole system is set up, it doesn't benefit teachers. It benefits teacher unions. It benefits NCAE. The 
really the best way to pay teachers is to have their employer, the one that knows their value, make that decision. Not have that decision based on a salary schedule. So what one of the fundamental points we'd like to, to, to implement is to be able to make that decision a local one. Give a principal the opportunity to provide a, a, a salary to a teacher. They know best the strengths and um, the areas of improvement for teachers. They know them better than anyone else. In, in, in other businesses, that decision is made on a local level. Why shouldn't it be made? Why shouldn't it be the same way in education where the people who know teachers and how they perform and their value are usually in the building, but in education, we don't, don't do things that way. That, that decision to have pay based on, you know, time in, 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 in the classroom, et cetera, that benefits the teachers unions. It doesn't benefit teachers. Oftentimes teachers outperform where they are on a salary schedule, but they're limited to what, where they can be on a, a salary schedule as far as what they can get. So there are many injustices that flow from that. And I think it's, it's, it's usefulness. I mean, it has, it's, it's really kind of eclipsed its usefulness as far as the salary schedule. There are a lot of problems with it as far as, uh, and that were highlighted, you know, just a few years ago when, uh, we were taking a closer look at it. We also believe one of the fundamental things we found out is that it takes teachers too long to get up to say, a, a, you know, a livable salary, say of about 50,000, you know, in a few years ago, that was almost 15 years. Oh and that's my just goodness. too long. People that are, people become frustrated. They leave the field yep. because of that. So, but that's the, that's essentially, you know, the slope that was adopted by the salary schedule. And it's a problem. Uh, and not, you know, as we know, uh, other people, you know, exceed where they are. Some people don't perform up to that level. And oftentimes, you know, there might be a problem in, in that you, you might not be able to, uh, you know, move them into another slot because of salary schedules and so forth. But it's, you know, it's really a, I believe a straitjacket for most uh, school districts. And if we were really to improve, you know, the ability of, as to how we pay teachers, we need to move away from a system like a teacher salary schedule and move to a system where those decisions are made by basically the principals in those buildings because they know best how teachers are performing. Now, would they have to develop salary, uh, you know, salary ranges and so forth? Yes, but that's easy enough to do. And the, and the good thing about that is the reality is that most, uh, that all school districts are in different labor markets. There's a different labor market, you know, in Wake County than there is in Wilmington and so forth. And school districts adopt to that, but, uh, Principals, you know, who, who have, who are responsible for faculty and so forth, they're the ones that re really need to be on top of that. And I believe, you know, they're all, they all have the wherewithal to, to be able to develop a, a schedule that pay people appropriately, that reward them for service and provide, you know, the appropriate incentives to make sure that people are performing. Those decisions, I think, are best made and are more effective in the long run if those decisions are in the building and not predicated on simply on some piece of paper. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking, I'm just thinking of my own experience teaching for Thales Academy. I mean, we've gone through various different management models. Sometimes some years were more centralized than others. And our most effective uh, management model for the school, at least, is really that decentralized model where each campus administrator is able to make decisions. Uh, the one of our pieces as Thales uh, prides itself as being a uh, one of our phrases is a school run like a business. And one of the run like a business parts is that 
Uh, we have a centralized human resources department that handles those kinds of things and sets salary schedules and everything, but it's also highly related to the recommendations from the, each campus administrator. And I think a, a, a lot of what you're saying makes sense to me. I mean, in that the principals are the ones doing classroom observations. They are the ones who know their, their strong players and their weak players. And I mean, one of the other difficulties I think that a lot of people would have with the, uh, with a, at least the North Carolina or at least the Wake County salary schedules, the one I'm more familiar with, it's also tiered to academic degree. So there's a substantial boost if you get a master's degree. It doesn't go beyond a master's degree. They kind of stop there. Uh, but I mean, but my goodness, 15 years. I mean, teaching's a great career for somebody who is right out of college. But I mean, it, you, you can't start a family on $36,000 a year as a starting salary. You can't like make, you can't really pay the bills. Uh, it takes a long time to, and the longer it takes, the more you end up losing some of your best people to other other fields. I would think. Yeah, that's that's a reality, Josh. I mean, that's happening, and uh, it needs to be corrected. I mean, the legislature tried to, you know, change that a little bit a couple of years ago when they when they were tweaking some of the um, salaries. In early on in, in your career and tried to make it a little steeper that, so that it wouldn't take so long to get up to, you know, say 50,000. Cause it, it just takes too long. People get discouraged. They realize, you know, I'm not going to be making a, a, you know, a good wage, you know, for 15 years and they leave the field. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it, I don't know if it's improved about two, three years ago. I, I heard that 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 you know three to five years after the average uh, education student leaves college, 50% of them are out of the classroom. And my guess is that um, you know what I just said as far as you know taking too long to get up to a to a livable wage is probably one of the reasons that you know that's driving a lot of that. Oh, I, I I would certainly suspect I'm sure that's true. I haven't looked at any recent data. I've heard that same statistic. I know. I've, I mean, I've also heard there's nationwide there is a shortage of teachers, and it's with the way we have kind of our society currently set up. Uh, teaching is a necessity, but it's really difficult if we are not compensating teachers uh, uh, to really reflect that. When uh, the people who are going to be successful in the classroom typically have a skill set that means they could be successful in a variety of fields. I wonder if we could go back to something you mentioned a moment ago. Uh, you said that the North Carolina Associate, Association of Educators is our uh, our state's affiliate of the National Education Association. Could you tell us a bit about uh, what exactly is the role of the teachers union in education? I mean, is is this a necessary evil? Do they do they provide some kind of massive benefit in terms of quality assurance, or is really this a a bane on education as a whole? What what what's your what is your view of uh, of teachers unions? Well. Um... I think we have to get into, you know, uh, what they view their mission as and, and actually what happens. And if you look at, you look at the NCA mission statement, they say they are voice of educators in North Carolina and they aim to unite, organize and empower members to be advocates for education professionals, public education and children. Okay. So that, that's pretty broad and expansive. But if, if you look at, what, what actually happens? Now, let me back up and we'll say, and say they have every right to do that and be a, a professional organization for teachers. Um, I, I'm not questioning that at, at, at all as much as, you know, any other profession has a right to do that. Where, uh, we question is, you know, their continual stance that, uh, you know, they are working in the best interests of children. Hmm. And or parents, which I don't. I mean, I think many of their actions uh, run against those claims that they're working in the best interest, you know, of the public schools and the children. I think. I mean, every year I, I usually publish uh, a lot of the resolutions that they've adopted at their annual convention, the annual NEA convention, and um, that'll come up probably in a week or two because I, I actually think that they're they're at their national convention now, but. 
You know, that, what I try to highlight there is that uh, politically and culturally, I think they're out of step with most of the ma- of mainstream America. And unfortunately, over the last decade or so, most, um, I would say a lot of the NCAA teachers, you know, have, have, you know, become pretty ardent social justice warriors and have used their teaching position, you know, as a vehicle to bring a lot of politics into the classroom that most people object to. So that's, that's been, uh, uh, a significant source of uh, disagreement and opposition that we've had with NCAE. Um, now, if you notice, they they have led you know th- those two efforts, the two marches the last couple of years, red for red. Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember that one. Primarily political rallies, and they weren't shy about saying that that they were political rallies, and they were trying to. Um, you know, use that as a mechanism for uh, boosting their own membership and highlighting a lot of the things that they wanted to put on their education agenda, a lot of which, you know, if you look closely, were not education-related, um, such as, you know, Medicaid expansion is was one of the things that uh, was on the NCAA um agenda for, I think, two years ago at their last rally, and a number of other things that, you know, the average person would question, what does this have to do with education? Hmm. But it's just it, it's just indicative of, you know, a political agenda that's been seeping into the classroom and um, that a lot of people have problems with. Now, is the uh, one other question about the, the NEA or the NCA? Uh, do those or NCAE? Do those organizations are those tied to licensure? Meaning that are all licensed teachers members of that organization? Are, are you talking about a license to teach in North Carolina? I am. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm asking there. Like, are those? Is that a? Is that? Is I guess what I'm trying to figure out is like, is it optional to join those organizations, or is that really something that? Every teacher, as part of working in a public in a public education space, is going to be a is going to be a member of that organization. No, no, you're not you're not required. Uh, North Carolina does not require uh, every teacher uh, to join uh, NCAE. In fact, um, we track their membership every year. And in fact, I just blogged on this about a week ago that uh, NCAE has had their I think it's the uh, ninth or tenth consecutive year of declining membership. Um, so they are, they have been bleeding members for the last decade, um, which you know is you know is a statement. Teachers vote with their feet. I mean, one thing I did want to say, if we're talking about this topic, as I said early on, they said that NCA claims to be the voice of educators in North Carolina. Uh, the last membership number that was released uh, for North Carolina was that they had about 17,000 active members in North Carolina. Now, um, active means teachers, you know, instructional staff, or other professionals. Now, there's about 94,000 actual teachers, full-time teachers in North Carolina. So depending upon how many of those 17,000 are teachers, and if, say for the sake of argument, you said all 17,000 were teachers, that would be, that would mean that about 18% of current North Carolina teachers were members of NCAE. Uh, another way, that's, that's another way of saying, you know, less than one in five. Or four out of five teachers, approximately, are not members of NCAE. Now that that puts the question in a different light for most people, because I think a lot of people around North Carolina think that most every teacher is a member of NCAE, and that's certainly not the case. As it, if you look at these numbers, as I said before, the number of teachers in NCAE has been declining you know, uh, precipitously 
over the last 10 years. And I, I've written on that. You can, you can look up those articles on, on johnlock.org. Uh, I have, and Terry Stoops, my colleague, usually write about this at least once or twice a year, the declining membership. The other thing that's kind of interesting also is, and I think this bears on, you know, the general topic of, of teacher salaries. You know, everyone remembers the last two marches, the Red for Ed marches in North, in, in Raleigh. I think it was in 2018, mm-hmm. uh, and 2016. Um, and those were, I mean, demonstrations, obviously, to show this satisfaction with, you know, teacher salaries and with uh, some ed policy that was being developed. And also, I mean, and they were, they weren't, um, leaders in the organization weren't shy about saying there were also, uh, political rallies and also tools to boost NCAA membership. But what's interesting, even though there were, you know, by some reports anywhere from, you know, 10 to 15, 16,000 people at these rallies. If you look at membership numbers, they received, the organization received no bump or increase in membership during those years. That's significant. I mean, considering all the publicity and all the notoriety that those events had, the organization really did not you know, achieve that goal of kind of reversing the trend of declining enrollment. That's, that's noteworthy. That, that is really interesting. I mean, it, it reminds me of Ronald Reagan's famous phrase, the, the silent majority of, of Americans who, who would vote even, uh, even they, they might not go to a, to a rally, but they would vote for their conscience. Uh, it, it, it seems like there is a silent majority of North Carolina teachers that don't value the kinds of principles, at least certainly don't value them enough to join the teachers union and, and be a part of that. Uh, what you were describing about the, the those low numbers, that, that 18% of teachers, and the I wonder if that correlates with a, a sort of leftward movement of uh, the NCEA. Uh, on another episode in this season on the show, uh, Dr. Richard Vetter has a great description of the closing of Mills College and connecting that to really... Uh, no long Mills College going so progressive that they no longer provide education to students. And so there is a sharp market response where when they no longer provide the service for which their organization exists, people don't show up and pay tuition. And so it seems to me those numbers definitely reveal a disconnect between the actual actions and values of the uh, North Carolina Association of Educators and the values uh, teachers hold dear. Yeah, I, I think that's an astute observation, Josh. Um, and I think the other factor that we need to bring into play here is just, you know, how school choice has been, um, you know, brought into this whole discussion. And, you know, parents are, are not happy with how their schools are being politicized, you know, and, and, you know, over the last year, the pandemic, you know, as, as, as highlighted, you know, how parents want uh, more educational options. But I think even in coming back to school and, you know, just the realities of, you know, different political uh, indoctrination in, in schools and, you know, how parents are, you know, they don't want to send their child to a school whose values or whose uh, instructional practices undermine their own. They want to send their child to a school that affirms their own values, is a safe environment, and can challenge their child, their children, academically. And if they don't find that, you know, where their child is currently going, you know, parents will move. They vote with their feet. And we can see the, the recent, you know, uptick in school choice you know, as a result of that, and parents, you know, over the last year, primarily driven by the pandemic, you know, they parents want options. You know, and I, I think those options are driven, you know, in, in part by, you know, some of the political wins and how certain groups view education and how certain groups want to use education as a vehicle to other ends, and, and parents don't like it. 
and they want other options. And I think a lot of that's being worked out in the market now. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. There was a fascinating article in uh, the Manhattan Institute's journal, uh, City Journal, uh, a few months back about uh, social justice ideology being openly taught uh, and uh, not by kind of a fringe teacher or two, but really institutionalized in Wake County public uh, um, uh, professional development instruction for, for their teachers. That, that really the, uh, the idea of white guilt and white fragility was being institutionalized in Wake County. Uh, that, that shocked a lot of parents, I think. And, and really, there's, I, I've seen several pieces over the last few months about parents now seeing a lot of the work that their students are being assigned with virtual education and being very unhappy. Uh, Thales Academy, and I assume many other places as well, have seen, we, has seen enrollment skyrocket in the past year because parents realize they want something different. When given a choice, uh, parents, I, I, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm saying all parents are truly conservative. I don't think that's the case either. I think uh, parents really want, they want their kids to get a great education. They want their kids to have lots of opportunity going forward. And But what they don't want is indoctrinate their children to be indoctrinated one way or the other. They want their children to be given the best of critical thinking skills so that they're able to pursue whatever opportunities life brings them. And if that's not happening in a school, I think you're absolutely right. Parents will vote with their feet and they will go where they need to be to help their children have those opportunities. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, there's a lot going on in Wake County right now. And, and you know, the, I, I, I do remember seeing that piece they refer to in, in, in City Journal. And I, I think that was somewhat one of the initial sparks that, um, you know, started a lot of uh, this parent uprising. I know there's a, a group in, in the county that has, Five six thousand parents in it, you know. It was initially started, you know, with the goal of reopening Wake County schools, but because, you know, the parents are also concerned with not only issues of being open, you know, an issue that you know was prominent during the pandemic, but you know, parents don't like a lot of things that are going on in the schools, and one of those. I mean, you don't have to be. Uh, you know, conservative or liberal, I mean, when you get the sense that, I think you get a sense in most schools within a couple of days of whether or not parents are part of the equation mm. uh, and really welcome in schools. And I think one of the things that's driving, I mean, these changes and, you know, uh, you know, the popularity of school choices, unfortunately, a lot of these schools don't look at parents as, you know, a really important part of a child's education development, but they, they view them as they're in the way, uh, in trying, they're, 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 they're an enemy to, you know, really trying, having the school accomplish a lot of the goals that they want and that parents are not an important part, you know, in their child's development and they just assume, you know, work around them. That's bad. That's, that is not, uh, you know, a formula for any success for children. Parents do not respond to that. They will move to other alternatives as they should. And I think a lot of that's working out right now as you see movement from, you know, either publics to charters, to privates, you know, to homeschool, to virtual school. Uh, I think you're right when you said last, when, when you said during the, the pandemic, you know, a lot of these things came to light. What was going on in the classroom, how instruction, um, you know, was being uh, taught. And, you know, parents, I think, got kind of a view behind the curtain on some of this. And they really didn't like a lot what they saw. And, I mean, and that's, you know, the, uh, how can we do something better is, you know, is a question I think. A lot of them are looking at right now. Well, uh, Dr. Libke, I wonder if we could uh, circle this conversation back around and see if we can connect a couple things we've been talking about. Um, so uh, help me if I going back to the article that I read that, that started this whole conversation. Uh, if I if I understood you correctly, you see a connection between the way the National Educational or Education Association reports teacher salaries 
and the creation of the sort of myth that we talked about earlier about like that this is part of how people get the impression that their state either pays teachers really well or very poorly and that really how that information is reported changes a lot based on whether uh, we include certain factors is that did i understand your argument correctly yeah um that's very true josh and most uh, reporters when they report on this they're not going to include you know this these factors that really um influence you know the rankings and what what we're talking about is every year uh the national education association has a state uh rankings you know of teacher salaries in every state it's self-reported data but it's it's average teacher salary along with other education uh instructional support jobs and you know statistics along those lines but the key ingredient here is that there are there are some problems that kind of drive the story that they want and and one of them is that they use an average salary which kind of is an easy way for them to get their point across now anyone uh stay with me a minute here they're ranking 50 states you know that have different teaching workforces different ages, different levels of unionization. Some don't have, you know, unions or in some areas, aren't, unions aren't very strong. They have uh, different ages of workforce, uh, different ways schools are financed. A whole lot of different factors play into this. But we lock them all into one category. And what happens year after year after year is certain states, California, New York, New Jersey, you know, Illinois, high unionized states come out on top, you know, for obvious reasons. And the majority of other states are lower. Well, and then they say, you know, so-and-so state is, you know, underneath the national average. Well, most people would think, okay, the average is in the middle. But because the states that I described in the high end, they're so much higher, they skew the average. They skew it high. So that in actuality, if you're ranking 50 states, and this has happened, I mean, I've uh, tracked this, I think last year, I don't know if it happened this year, but th this past year, 38 out of the 50 states were underneath the national average. No, that doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> 38 <laughs> out of 50 it, were below it, the it, average. Yeah, it skews higher. In other words, if you have, let me try to simplify. If you have 10 people, you know, 10 teachers, and say two or three of them are making $150,000, and the others, you know, seven are making thirty-five dollars or $40,000. That's going to skew mm -hmm. the average teacher salary considerably higher, right? Sure. It's, it's, it's going to go up even though it's an average, but even though, uh, the majority of, of teachers in that classroom, you know, are going to be way below the national average because it's skewed. So in the same sense, you know, nationally, if you take the same principle, 38 out of 50 states are below the national average. Well, that's to their benefit. Why? Because their goal is to get uh, the national average up. Now, the proper statistic, if you're talking about the actual average, which when people say that, they usually mean the middle, right? Mm -hmm. The proper statistic in that we should be using in this discussion is really the median which is a true middle. The average is influenced too much uh, by high or inordinately high salaries or in, in, inordinately in, um, atypical numbers. And they can be skewed, and in this case, they are. But they, they do that because it makes their case. 
Now, that's a shortcoming. It's a significant shortcoming, but it works to the union's benefit. But nobody ever talks about it because reporters don't want to, you know, delve into it, but they're using the wrong statistic. Another shortcoming of uh, the NEA salary uh, rankings that never gets talked about is that the numbers do not include cost of living. Mm. Like North Carolina, you know, they'll say, well, your teacher's salaries here are lower. You know, they, they're not as high as New York and New Jersey. Well, the fact of the matter is the cost of living up there is considerably higher. So you would expect teacher pay to be higher up there. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a shortcoming. Now, even within North Carolina, and this gets back to what I was talking about before, about regional labor markets, even within North Carolina, there are differences in cost of living. You know, in some sense, you know, uh, local uh, school districts have what are called local salary supplements to help school districts, you know, uh, you know, reconcile or, you know, uh, accommodate differences, you know, between, you know, urban areas. Like it's, it's going to be more expensive, you know, in Wake County or Charlotte than it would be, you know, in rural areas, either, you know, like in Murphy or, you know, some other rural area that, you know, is not generally doesn't have a higher cost of living. So, you know, we even recognize that even on a state level. So, but when you, when you totally ignore that on a national level, I think it really limits the validity of your findings. And that's been a common criticism. My uh, colleague, Terry Stoops here at the, at the, at, at the Locke Foundation, He's actually done a fairly good job. Most years he's done this where he'll take, you know, what the actual uh, NEA rankings is as far as North Carolina. And then uh, he will apply cost of living data to it. I think the most recent one I saw was 2019. I don't think he did it for the pandemic because the numbers were way off. Sure. But, uh, uh, in, in 2019, um, North Carolina ranked 34th nationally in the NEA data. But when they, when you applied cost of living data to it, North Carolina's ranking actually went down to 29. Oh. So when you factor that in, and cause every, I mean, every salary has context. I mean, $60,000 you know, in, in Raleigh, you know, it's worth much more than $60,000, you know, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that, the NEA salary data does not take any of those factors, any of those cost differences into consideration. As I said before, when Terry did that, and in most cases, I think in all the cases when he's done it, North Carolina's position, its relative ranking has improved. So, when, so when, you know, any, anyone reads these articles in the newspaper and they usually come, they're usually printed in the spring because that's when the south, when the uh, surveys were released. Just make sure people understand that the, that the survey results do not include cost of living differences. Then lastly, another thing that readers should be aware of that's a potential shortcoming is that these um, surveys do not take into account differences in the composition of the teaching force from state to state. For example, um, let's compare just New York and say North Carolina. New York has uh, an aging population. It's a, a stronger union workforce. And their average teacher is much older than the teacher profession than the hmm. average age of a teacher in, in, in North Carolina. North Carolina is a growing state. They've had to, to build more schools. They've had to hire more teachers. The average age of a teacher in North Carolina is much less, you know, than what it is in North Carolina. So that obviously the average age or the average teacher pay, you know, in a state that has younger teachers is going to be lower. 
I mean, that's just the reality based on the demographics of the teaching uh, workforce. But again, you know, the, the survey does not account for any of those differences, but it, it really impacts, you know, the final number. And those figures really uh, need to be addressed, or those factors need to be addressed, you know, to help explain, you know, why a state's average salary is what it is. But those are things that we consider, you know, to be shortcomings. No survey or no study like that is perfect. You all have shortcomings, but I think when, uh, you know, the findings are discussed, I think they really, uh, people need to understand that there are important factors, you know, that need to be brought into the discussion of the findings, you know, and that cost of living is not included. And that's one of the major ones or, um, the composition of the teacher workforce. Sure. You know, that's, those are factors that really, you know, significantly impact uh, where a state's going to fall on a relative ranking. Those are some really helpful nuances for us to consider, Dr. Libke. I, I think I, I frequently tell my uh, debate students, I, I, I coach uh, our, our debate team at, at Bailey's Rollsville, and uh, I frequently tell them that they, if they're going to cite information in a case they from a study, they need to be ready to explain why that data is legitimate and why it has not been manipulated. Because everything you're describing sounds to me like a whole bunch of data that if it's arranged this way, information comes out favoring a certain group. If it's arranged another way, it comes out favoring somebody else. Whereas, but then what we end up with is sort of a grab bag of factual claims that journalists can quickly get and they can attribute to a very legitimate sounding organization that the uh, the news reading uh, public can then hear and it sounds legit. And, but when you dig in a little bit deeper, there's a lot more under the surface. So I, I really appreciate you giving us that, that under the surface look at it. Well, we're, we're running up on our, our time for today's conversation. Uh, here on the Optimistic Curmudgeon, we're, we're always looking for really two things. Uh, you, you've helped us enormously with an area where uh, it seems that kind of what everyone knows is in fact wrong. Where if, if what we know is that uh, teacher pay is uh, horrendously low in North Carolina, uh, you, you've already given us a lot more to the story. There, there's more to that claim. There's more to know uh, than, than just that, that factoid that it seems like we all know. But the other thing we're always looking for too is uh, those those pieces of hope of, of where we can of where we see things going forward from here. So as we wrap up today, um, what changes do you think our state legislature could make that would improve public education in North Carolina? Well, changes that it could make, I I, I think um, I, there there are a number of areas. Obviously, I think. The major concern uh, this past year has been the pandemic and, and making sure that kids are performing, you know, at the level they need to be is a great concern and legitimately so, you know, that the last year has been really hard academically on kids. And as they get back to school, there has to be assessments to figure out where kids are at. And, you know, once they learn that, once they find that out, how how best, you know, do you get uh, kids to the level where they need to be performing. The legislature has, you know, uh, taken a number of steps to address some of those concerns. There are summer camps, which I think are helpful. One of the things that we've been working hard towards is to provide parents, you know, uh, grants or, or uh, basically uh, education savings accounts to allow them to to use that money uh, on expenses, you know, re towards, uh, uh, you know, academic assessment of their children. In other words, they could use that money, you know, on for tutoring, you know, for, uh, you know, academic sessions, you know, whether the cost of, you know, a remedial program for books, testing, things like that. Um, there are a number of states that have already done this and have experimented with programs that have been proven to be exceptionally uh, popular with parents. And I think if North Carolina went that way and empowered parents really 
to take greater control over their child's education, and especially now in making sure that children are where they're supposed to be academically, I think that would be a, a real major step, you know, in improving um, the education of children, but also improving public policy here in North Carolina. I know we've been working hard towards that. There are other groups that are working hard towards that. But I believe um, one of the bright spots, you know, over the last year is where, as we've battled this pandemic, has just been uh, the opportunities, the growing opportunities for school choice here in North Carolina. And I think to the extent that that flourishes, it provides opportunities for parents to put their child in the best educational environment, you know, an educational environment that suits them, their strengths and their needs. And when that happens more, I think, uh, I think everyone wins. The child wins, the parent wins. I think we all win because when there's a good fit there, uh, there'll be a good educational experience for children. Well, Dr. Lipke, thank you so much for joining us today on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Where can people find and follow your work online? Yeah, I'm posting all my articles and blog posts on our John Locke website, which is www.johnlocke.org. You can find all my writings there. Perfect. We'll be sure to link that to our show notes. That uh, Listeners, you can find that, those show notes posted to optimisticcurmudgeon.org. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, we're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful. <laughs>